0: Welcome to this week's True House Stories coming out of New York City in my studio right here, Current Power Records. And I finally got this guy to agree to do today's program. And he's multi-talented. I've known him a long, long time. I've seen his name in the 80s. And I remember he worked with Justin Strauss on some initial remixes and production stuff that he worked on. And I know he's got a, Integral story. He's also one half of Frankie Knuckles' sound. Director's cut that you all know. You know, this is the guy behind it. The the magic box. We should say the Pandora's box. When you open the box, comes this little guy with a keyboard ready to play and rock you. It's a DJ. It's a producer. It's probably got more number one records on Billboard for remix than anybody else I know. Lucky him. (laughs) And as well, he has his family life. He's a studio owner. He's everything. Entrepreneur. And he's been going for a long time. And he's going to tell you his story, which is the good thing about True House Stories. Each and every week, we get some great people. And of course, I'd like to introduce Eric Copper to my show. Thank you, Eric, for doing it, brother.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.
0: And, um... I hope I was right on some of the things. I know the billboard thing. I'm not sure if you're the number one guy, but you're pretty I cool. Don't know, but I, you know,
1: I, have, I, I have a few. I got it. Yeah, I got, you got I more got than a few, brother. You got a lot. <laughs>
0: you got a lot to make anyone envious. And it's in a good way, in a loving way. You know, you've actually done a lot for our music business. You've been involved with Deaf Mix Sound for a long time. And I know you did a lot of keyboard work for, you know, David Morales and Frankie. And I know you worked with all of them as well and a lot of great producers and also you've had tremendous hit records too if i remember correctly rapaul and um a lot of great records on your own hysteria is your record label but of course i'm gonna let you tell your story um but i will start with the first question as i always ask everyone and everybody knows that watch this show is as a young young kid where does music find Eric Cooper, and how does it begin?
1: Well, yeah, man, music has always been an integral part of my life. My family, actually, from the old country, um, on my father's side, were musicians. They were, my great-grandfather was an opera director, traveled all around Europe. My grandmother, on my, again, my father's side, um, was a concert violinist. Her brother who I never met, he passed before well before I was born, was one of the first jazz violin players. So I come from like a family of like violinists, basically, and opera directors. Um, you know. So my father, although he was musically inclined, he just didn't have the impetus to to learn an instrument really well and, and play it, but he was an audiophile. So we sat around listening to records. I mean, I had a dope mono system back in the day. It was a Bogan uh, uh, amplifier and a General Electric uh, preamp tube, you know what I mean? And so I was listening to records when I was a little kid, man, always just absorbing the music. Um, and, you know, playing, playing insurance, we got, my grandmother had a piano on my, actually my mother's side. So every time I was over there, I would play around with it. And eventually, when my other great-grandfather died, we got his upright in the house. And I started taking uh, a few lessons here and there and just twinkling around. And always always had a set of bongos. Even when I was a little kid, I had a set of bongos and would set up a a fake drum set, like little things and play along to records and stuff. So, man, yeah, music, uh, it just never... (laughs) I can't remember a time where I didn't just constantly listen to music and, and was when I look back at it I was analyzing it even back then.
0: Really? So before let's, okay. So we know that you're a prolific keyboard player.
1: Um, I'm a synthesis, let's say, yeah, I'm not, I don't have like the piano chops of like a Terry Burris or a Peter Schwartz, one of those guys, but, uh, you, you know, know. Pretty good
0: come on dude you played uh, a lot of records come on <laughs> yeah, no, i know but i'm oh, just saying wait, wait, the, one I sexy, are you the one finger guy come on you know if
1: playing. i want a dope jazz piano player i'm gonna hire terry or you know or peter or something like that yeah well, play on my records but satoshi's hired me to play on his records too for you know for my sound so it's just like you know different sound stuff but yeah i, I consider myself more of a synthesis and you know bass lines a specialty <laughs> <Yeah. I mean. laughs> the, but, uh, yeah, no, I, pl- but I, pl- I think the reason I do good bass lines is I also play the bass guitar. So I have a feel for how bass works within an arrangement just from playing, uh, playing bass and jamming around with people and kind of, you know, realizing that the bass, I always say the bass, how can I gotta say the drums are the bus, but the bass drives the bus. So, uh, yeah.
0: It's important. I play, that I play, that I play, I play a few instruments. Play.
1: I play guitar. I play keyboards. I play, I have a drum kit set up in my kitchen now because I'm not having dinner parties anytime soon. So I <laughs> ripped them out of storage and, uh, you know, I've been messing around and enjoying, uh, you know, setting up uh, a, a new kind of home studio setup where I used to have a big studio with, you know, everything mic'd up and ready to go. Then I downsized. Really, like all the director's cut stuff was done on a laptop, believe it or not. Everything, no analog gear, a USB keyboard and a laptop. That was it. Um, And now I'm back into incorporating some of the, you know, ripping some stuff out of storage. I got a little more space now and uh, setting up a uh, proper, interesting kind of home setup where I can uh, record live instruments again.
0: Yeah, because I did hear you had a phenomenal studio in your house at one time. A few people,
1: at home- <laughs> it was it was insane. man. it's funny, you know, it wasn't it? Wasn't like the great big console or anything like that. It did have a console, but it was like a Mackie. But what it did have was like forty something analog synthesizers. I mean, true analog, not not to mention the digital analog hybrid stuff. You know, it was like and tons of outboard gear because back in those days you needed you know, you were running stuff live or, um, or, you know, printing the tape, but even so you needed a lot of gates unless you wanted lots of hiss and hum, you had to have 24 channel, 24 channels of noise gates minimum, you know what I mean? So unless you happen to have an SSL, which I think you have, and you have it on every channel anyway, but,
0: um, yeah, but you got noisy channels and they need to be gated. You know that, especially the tape, you know that.
1: And if you were running live, like a lot of us were before, you know, I had my first multi-track system, I had 24-track ADAT, like a lot of people. It was the first affordable way to, you know, record at home. And then when uh, hard disk took over, um, suddenly a lot of that outboard became a little redundant. You didn't really need noise beats anymore. You could just chop out the the, uh, stuff in between and, you know. But, uh, yeah. But it was a, it was a, it was a pretty decked out studio, and I kept all the really cool pieces. And uh, some are in storage, and some I rotate over here.
0: That's awesome, bro! But before we even get to the what the director's cut, I want to know the '80s for you, because that's when I remember hearing your name. Because <laughs> <laughs> was it was it a rock band before dance music started? Because I couldn't remember the story that you told me long time ago. Yeah, yeah, you okay, gotta well, give a the fact. story again what happened, how you met Justin Strauss how that all happened the d- well, introduction yeah. of walking you into the dance world, so I know I think it was him that walked you, because I remember saying Eric, where did you come out of, and you said well, I think it was Justin Strauss and and you gotta tell the story tell it yeah,
1: yeah. I don't think it was Justin, it was definitely Justin um, but, well, you know I'm like, I didn't to go to clubs before that but he introduced me more into the house realm. But see, I was playing in a band, I guess I was still in high school and we were kind of like this almost like a no-wave band. We would they had this it, kind of a reaction to new wave that was kind of punk and sometimes atonal and sometimes jazz and sometimes funk and whatever. And we were playing uh CBJBs and all those kind of places. And like a lot of bands, it seems like Like you take a band like The Jam, they became Style Council. They became a blue-eyed soul band. And that's kind of the the progression we took, too. We started writing these more kind of soulful pop tunes. And we we had a band together at the time. And we were playing around New York, China Club, Nirvana, and all the kind of places you could play, Bleecker Street, you know. And um, a friend of mine. Bass player from my old band went to high school with these two girls, and one of them was dating Justin. And we also, the bass player in my band, knew Justin just through the club scene because he lived on the Lower East Side, and we used to go to clubs like Berlin and Pyramid and all those kind of places. Ivan Ivan was playing at, at uh, Pyramid, and so we were, you know, in the club world, but. It wasn't really a house thing yet. We're talking about like 80 to 84, you know. But uh, Justin took, and his partner Murray Elias, they had Pop Stand Productions, took an interest in our band. And we had a, a development deal ready to sign with RCA. But then we lost our singer. And then we tried, it's, it's one of those, you know, classic scenarios, the deal that didn't happen. But what did happen is uh, from being in the band um justin had asked me because I, I had asked me um how would you like to come in and play uh play guitar on the session i was like okay i can do that and there was a keyboard there too so well we need a bass line so let's rock a bass line okay and that record actually was uh a bill nelson record bill nelson was the guitarist for bebop deluxe which was kind of a uh a Prague glam band for lack of a better way to describe their music from the seventies into the early eighties. And I was a huge fan. So I was like, Oh my God, I'm getting to play on a Bill Nelson record. And from there we did that recording at D D if you remember D and D sure. I do. A lot of people, a lot of great things came out of that, that studio. Um, and yeah, we were working with this young engineer at the time called named Andy Wallace <laughs> who ended up being one of the Biggest engineers in the world. You know, he produced, actually, he mixed this little album called Nevermind for Nirvana. Right. And his career just went crazy. I mean, you look at like almost every great rock record from that period on, and he was involved in like at least half of them. But yeah, so uh that was kind of it. You know, it's like he got me in the door with the studio. Things started to work out for him and Murray. Things, and they brought me in more and more and more. And before you know it, we had a little team. And that's when he was playing me all these these records, all the early Chicago stuff. Um, You know, stuff was starting to filter in from the UK as well. And of course, some New York stuff. And we were part of that. And the big difference between me and a lot of other keyboardists around the, the New York scene is a lot of them thought they were above it all. They were like, ah, this is like simple crap and I'm not really into it and blah, blah, blah. So, and, you know, it's just a, it's a two-bar loop, you know? <laughs> so, like, I was like, no, this is dope and this is cool. This is the new frontier. This is fresh and I'm feeling it. So I think that's what kind of, you know, spurred my career. It got me to work was the fact that I actually loved and felt the music and wasn't in the session begrudgingly like some other people were. So from you know, the New said, Wave side
0: the dance music thing, you really bit, it took you. You locked into it. You really understood it right away when you heard it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, I already was buying like 12 inches of records by like Loose Ends and Strafe and and all like the r b stuff from the early 80s that was starting to, you know, come out on 12s. Um, I wasn't uh, I didn't have like a bunch of Southall records around yet, but I was leaning towards more of the the early 80s kind of Slickly produced stuff, Sarone, and um, all that stuff. I was already buying 12 inches of it. You know, Thomas Dolby, I had a bunch of 12 inches of his, You know, Human League, all those records of the time. Don't and you want
0: me, baby? <laughs> I to tell people, yeah. those days in New York, even when I was DJing, you were playing that amongst r dance music. Like, your night. Was
1: playing across the board most clubs. Oh, absolutely! In fact, remember? that record, I, I almost, I credit that record sometimes as the first crossover record. Don't you want me? Because BLS played, right, and it was the first record of that ilk. I remember hearing on BLS. You know, For everybody in
0: the world—that's WBLS, where Frankie Crocker was the program director who took major, major strides and chances, and that was what we were categorized as a white dance record. To be exactly, I don't want to say. I'm, oh, I'm you going did. to a, a white a black dance record. record, meaning English. It's got a digital sound to it. It's not a Philly or a New York style record, and it was a big club track that he heard and he rocked it on
1: regular daytime play. That was yes. used for that. That was big. Yep, and that so that was a really big moment in crossover music and crossover dance music for sure. But, yeah. uh yeah, so. But there were, you know, again, there was always great dance music. And I remember hearing one record that always stuck out was Robert Palmer looking for clues. I used to hear that at clubs back in the early 80s. And, it, you know, dance music was dance music. It didn't really matter whether it was Tom Tom Club or Philly or it was just dance music. But I mean, and that's still how how dance music is to me, quite honestly. You know, of course we have house music proper and all the different uh, subgenres within but when I play like my when I started to DJ more, more seriously and you know I joke I've only been DJing for 20 25 years compared to all y'all <laughs> I've been DJing for like 40 years and stuff but when I first started I was playing very eclectic sets and what it wasn't like open format but I would play talking heads I would play some a Kirk de Giorgio techno record, and then I'd play a Philly soul record. Then I, you know, i mix tempos and i mix genres. And um, that's to me still what what drives me. And
0: everyone, that would be a night at Danceteria. Exactly. Just like that exactly. Mark yeah. Amans. He would take you across the board, everything.
1: Mark or Justin, was. Or
0: Justin Strauss at Roxy. That Roxy is. Yeah. Um,
1: and Ritz. At the Ritz. Yep. He was the Ritson area. And Mark is was a huge influence on me. That guy in, he influenced everybody. Oh yeah. I mean, every major DJ used to go to see Mark to hear what he was going to play, because he was on the cutting edge. He would he would you know, he was he was taking all this getting all the early stuff from Belgium and from Europe in general and playing it before anyone and and I mean I remember every DJ going to check out Mark just to you know, just to kinda do
0: their homework. Yeah. Well, you had, you had what, what we call the go-to guys. He would be one of those, you know, you had Bruce Forrest at better days. You had Larry Levan, you had Mark Caymans. You had, you know, there was, there was the key guys in New York that if they played your record, trust me, everyone is searching for your record now. And in those days, it was all about getting to the shops you know, and digging and hunting hard as a collector, you know, or if you're a DJ playing at your club, you wanted to have that track. And a lot of times it was a matter of a producer like yourself, bringing something to someone like myself or another DJ. And we would have it months, months before it was, or it was still in production. You guys are still making the record saying, don't give it to nobody. <laughs> this is all you because <laughs> I know I gave it to you. Do not give it out because we're not done with it yet. Cause then, that's all you had to say to a DJ. Next thing you knew, the thing was all over the place. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I told you don't give it out. <laughs> I told you don't give it out. But but we all learned that
1: lesson the hard way, don't we? Um Yeah, well, and but back then we're talking about, you know, if you're lucky, you'd get a dat tape and transfer to or it to reel to reel. Otherwise we more reel to reels you would bring into guys to say you want and, and ad- cassette. The, the whistle song was originally on a cassette that Frankie transferred to a real to reel.
0: Yeah. we'll get to that in a minute that's sound factory era but i want to give pre to that because i want to know the first major sessions that you started in new york and who you worked with i know you worked with justin his partner so where does it go from there now you're starting to be getting your own two feet and loving this two loop two bar loop thing where are you going from? <laughs> it's like you know sometimes, you sometimes, bar, sometimes four but yeah well, you know, I mean, two to
1: four to six to eight we get that but where is it going from, <laughs> from there with, uh, with everybody. Even from there, it just, you know, the, the studio work with Justin and Murray picked up. And then uh, I think the, the next person who called me. Hmm, it's a good question. I could actually check on my database, but one of the first was Richie Jones. Um, you know Richie. Oh, uh, yeah. Richie is best known in the dance music world for his work with Degrees of Motion, Shine yes. On, and uh, Do You Want It Right Now. But he's done a ton of other things, you know, oh, yeah,
0: he's been around a long time, Richie, which is, enough. yeah,
1: he's done oh, everything from great, shameless pop music we've done together to seriously underground records. In fact, we just put out one on Hysteria um, this month, the uh, Sophia Rubina record, the uh, C- Calling You, the cover of the uh, Baghdad Cafe record. So I think that he was, it, it was him. There was a few around the same time. It was well, there was Mark as well, Mark Cayman's. Basically, I started getting calls because people like what I did with Justin. So there was Mark Cayman's, there was Arthur Baker, um, Richie, and then the call came from David. And from David came Frankie. (laughs) And
0: the definite story begins.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I always say I've worked with almost every DJ once. I don't think I ever worked with Bruce Sparrs, though. Um, but I did work with Shep a couple of times. And I worked with Junior a couple of times as well. Um, but they really had their own guys. I was just kind of standing in because someone couldn't make it or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was such a vibrant time in New York. I mean, you remember, I mean, and talking about Arthur and Shakedown. Oof, everybody, and, and everybody m- met each other. That's why I, m- I met Lenny D there and Victor Simonelli. Uh, Simonelli, Simonelli, <laughs> Victor. <laughs> Everyone's from oh, out there. That's Victor Simonelli. <laughs> yeah, I just put Lenny D and and Victor together because together they were they were a duo at one point. Yeah, so it, Victor Simonelli. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny, um, D. Lenny, D, and Victor Simandelli's. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but tell but, us, um, but tell us what the shakedown story was like for you. What, what? I mean, because here's what you have to understand: they see your records. They're like, wow, he's so talented. We know you're around a lot of talented people too. What's going on in New York? What was, what was that electric feeling at that time? Like, what was happening?
1: Man, it was a buzz, you know. You were there. Um, I know, but all the record shops—it's—it's it, it's like in the course of a day, you would hit a record shop or two or three. Then you'd end up in the studio, and in that studio, you're bumping into everybody who just maybe would just pass them through to say hi there to book a session for another time, or maybe in the other studio, like Shakedown at two studios, Quad at three or four, you know. They, so we. There was just this. You would be, you know, you'd be in the elevator at Quad, and Tupac would be there, and he actually got shot once in the in the uh, in the uh, in the lobby there. But he, um, it was just this scene of house music and hip hop t- at the time was massive. So there were studios like Calliope and D D, which did a lot of hip hop, and INS where I worked. at. I worked at uh, INS a lot, and if. Basically, it seemed like uh, between us and um, the, the house guys and, and hip-hop basically made that studio happen. There wasn't much other kind of music going on. And I'd say that goes, holds true for D&D and definitely Shakedown. I mean, you know, there was pop music going on at Shakedown more because it was a bigger studio. It um, had a nice SSL in there. But... Um, Man, yeah, I, it was just a vibrancy and everybody mingling and then seeing each other at the club after the studio and maybe bumping into each other at the record store before the studio because you would want to buy some new records, maybe bring them to the studio and and check them out and maybe get a vibe, you know? So, uh, yeah, man, there was a buzz like, like, I cannot, that you know.
0: synergy, That synergy was incredible during those days. There was so much going on. Not only did you have that, you had all the record labels in the city in New York City yes. time. Yep. That was what the killer was. Not only were you clubbing to hear the songs or going to the record shops and running into people or going to the studios and run, running into the artists. But then if you had a really hot record, you call up somebody and listen, I'm going to run up to your office and I want to play you something. That
1: yes. I missed. That I missed. Oh, do Very I miss true. Yeah. I mean, I used to do meetings just to, I mean, I used to take trips to LA just to hang out and meet with all the record people. Yeah. You know, we, we did meetings all the time and just vibed and Hey, I got something I think you would be good for and that kind of thing. And yeah, you know, or you might have something that you're pitching to a label and yeah, those days are, uh, you know, I mean, the days of developing things on major labels is, let's say is drastically diminished. you know you should be able to give them a seed yeah you should be able to give them a seed of something and they and if they felt it they would sign it to at least a development deal it's very it's very difficult to get that done right now without like a certain amount of spotify numbers already and youtube bits and stuff like that it just seems like it's all uh, there's a lot of work that the artist has to do for themselves which is cool too you know it's a different different method now but um I kind of miss those days of artist development. Well, can you
0: explain that to someone that's looking at this as a bit younger, what that really means? Cause you've been in a couple of those deals along your in your career. You know what yeah. that really, really consisted of a true artist. Well, here's
1: a, here's a, a pretty grand example. I'm a huge fan of the artist, Kate Bush. She's a British singer. She's made a lot of milestones. She was the first British singer songwriter who wrote her own songs to have number one records in the UK to still have a number one album. I mean, she is a seminal artist. I got to work with her once, which is was, was actually a thrill. Um, she got signed when she was like, I'm going to guess 16, 17 years old. But they waited. She got brought in by David Gilmore from Pink Floyd, um, produced some or help, helped out on some demos and got her. A development deal with the MI and what this in the development deal they gave her dancing lessons, they kind of groomed her as an artist, they let her write, they let her kind of get things together. So by the time she was 18, 19, she put out an album that was great, you know, especially as a debut album. And that kind of thing you just don't hear about labels doing much anymore. It's uh, there was there was possible reasons because of. Her age at the time that they waited till she was older it makes it easier for child labor laws and touring and things like that. But that being said, now that kind of thing was done a lot. Okay, we put them in, let's give them a small deal, give them some money to record, put them in the studio with the producer and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If it does, awesome. Then we sign a regular deal and boom, we got, it. but the label took the chance. They had the, you know, the, they had the right to put them, their money all the foresight. Yes. To put them
0: the money, to put them <laughs> on. Yeah, it's like going into a casino. You know, it's like we're gonna yeah. take a shot on you, we're gonna throw we're gonna throw dice and we'll see if we hit seven. You know. Because
1: you know what? As good as an artist is, it's a crapshoot in this business. You know, it's there there has to be all the elements and the time and the perseverance. There's a lot of elements into what makes a successful artist career. And you could, I've I've seen, you know, we've all seen it many times, amazing talents who didn't hit because for whatever reason, it didn't all come together. So for a label to put, to to, to say, okay, we're going to drop a quarter million on a, uh, on a development deal. That was, you know, that was something. So, uh, and very often, you know, I'd say the average development deals were somewhere between, yeah, like a hundred. And maybe 300 grand because that's not what I mean, studio time was expensive. Uh, engineers were expensive. Tape, a bloody roll of tape. Remember, we used to pay 150 to 200 bucks for and a roll we used of tape. To that we give us 15 minutes of music.
0: Yeah, we used to complain, and now try to buy that same tape. Now it's out of control.
1: <laughs> but now we have a hard drive that holds countless hours of music But we pay 100 bucks for. <laughs> <laughs> And remember, but, but yeah, and even then, you remember tones. You had to have tones and record pad, so that cut into your fifteen minutes of music too. <laughs> so, right. yeah. And print through. Oh God, imagine what that <laughs> happened. Print through. Oh, I
0: don't even want to go down that road. Oh God. So, but but no, I, I'm glad you explained what an artist development deal is because there's a lot of young people that watch the show, and there's their idea of artist development is they buy spotify followers they buy these russian followers for this and russian for that and chinese things for this because you see it you have it's five dollars you get five million, well, five thousand plays and at the end of the day they have a bunch of people sitting in a room at these major labels that are hacking and looking to see if these algorithms are real they know they could see all that because the majors have the power to look at everything whereas an independent record label, record label owner, you don't have that same visual they can, that they can see as far as looking at an artist if you're going to invest in somebody, you know? Sure, sure. But here we go. So now, being that you are a, a band guy, Justin introduces you to the studio sense of the remixing production side. Yep. When do you start to gain Eric Copper's professional like where the sponge begins? Who is that guy that that you were like, oh, wow, this is like, like, this, like, this. some people I worked with that, that I saw things and we all grab. It's just part of our game. You With great engineers, you just start to pull their, you know, some of their talent towards
1: your way. Where was that for you? It was, it was everyone I worked with, you know, I mean, uh, the engineers for sure. Because I was, I was always the guy, like in my band, I was the guy who normally manned the four track reel to reel. You know, I remember you know experimenting with mics and miking up instruments and stuff like that. And I was doing that when I was a little kid, just having I had a boombox and a regular uh, tape deck, and the tape deck had mic input, so you could record while you were bouncing the boombox over. So I was doing multi-track stuff that way. So I was very always into the technical side of things. So I would be picking the engineers' brains, watching what they were doing, um, and also just like like um, on the the MIDI side when I first started doing sessions with Justin I was playing stuff live I didn't know how to hook up a MIDI cable and sequence and stuff like that and then I started doing it and there were guys like Mac Quayle if you remember Mac in New Mac York worked... a lot of my records that's a great guy yeah. Mac, Mac was the guy that you went to when you had a question about MIDI Isn't that everybody <laughs> says like, it hey, where is Mac? Call Mac now Mac. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly man he, you know, I, I learned a lot from him and eventually you just, you learn by doing, I mean, I remember sitting there with the SBX 80, which was uh, the sync machine that we used to have to sync to lie um, to lock up MIDI to tape, um, punching in stuff by hand. I got to the point where I would literally be able to do an entire record by hand. Um, it took a lot of time. It took like five, six hours of work, but sometimes you had to do that when you were dealing with live instruments on the original, uh, tape, but, that, yeah. I mean, the engineers, I learned so much from, and just watching them as well. And I I was not shy about asking questions, not shy at all. And I had a few bits of gear of my own. I had a, at that point, I think I had a, yeah I had an eight track. I had one digital reverb, a compressor, a dual compressor.
0: And that was it at all. People, my that's the eight track cart machine he's talking about. He's talking about an eight track reel to reel.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. I'm about, I had an eight-track. It was this all-in-one thing. It was called the Studio Eight by Tascam, and it had like a quarter-inch, like under the hood. You flipped it up, almost like it was a, a big cassette, but there was a little reel-to-reel in there, and it had eight channels, um, three-band sweep EQ on each channel, which was cool. So it really kind of taught me the ins and outs of of uh, working with a console, even though it was small, but just on the The big consoles, what I learned, you know, you look at those big consoles, everyone says, how do you know how to work all those knobs? I go, you see, take an inch and a half strip of that, you learn that, and you pretty much know everything else. It's just one thing duplicated how many times. So I made sure I figured out what every damn button on the consoles in the studios I was working in, you know, uh, what they did. And I would feed off the assistant engineers, the engineers, um, the producers I was working with. Some more tech- were more technically adept and some were more vibe people. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I really fed off everybody in our scene. And I think that was the beauty of it. We all really kind of, we all kind of nurtured it, each other. Right, because, because pre-, pre to that,
0: there was no such thing like this. There was no such thing as as remixing like this. Tom Moulton did the remixes, and he worked out of one one or two studios in Philly, and he had a great staff of people. Well, that was in the seventies. It was no electronic gear like like the eighties and nineties had digital, you know, MIDI. That was until eighty six or yeah. eighty five, if I remember correctly. The first MIDI keyboards were actually around. It was it was actually, if I remember correctly, it was a thing called CV. So you would have one keyboard lock up with electrical uh, signals. It was a CV thing, you know, with yeah.
1: the old keyboards. And which is coming back big time now. I have a Eurorack system over here. Right. And everything is what they call CV and gate. And yeah, and you also have Roland had their own clock system where you'd be able to clock from one Roland machine to another. Um, and then there was also a clock output where you could, in theory, like lock up a Lindrum and an 808 and a couple other things. It was primitive. You kind of cross your fingers and hope it would work. And it worked sometimes. Yeah. Had to make sure you were in record all the time if you were recording to tape, you know. You got that one tape, that one take, that actually everything synced up nice, good. But, hopefully, um, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, there was a lot of tape cutting up. Even like in the in the 80s and 90s when we're, I was working with um, with Justin and everybody else, uh, we got the masters say for um, a four minute pop song, three minute pop song to, to remix. Well, how are you going to make that into a seven-minute, eight-minute, you know, plus record? You would have to make different passes. You'd make the main body pass with the main music in it. You'd make an intro pass. You'd make an outro pass. you maybe make a break pass. You'd make all these little things, and you'd edit them together. Because you didn't have, you know, just the uh, ability to cut and paste. It wasn't until... I'd say let me say the early 90s where I had an S1000 with enough memory in it to sample the entire vocal and I could put the entire vocal in there and then arrange from there and not have to deal with the limitations of tape. And I remember hearing Steve Hurley um, his mix of Clubland um, hold on hold on tighter tight hold on tight or hold on oh yeah whatever hold on I think it was called And he completely, he not only did he rearrange it, he took one line from like the B section or something and made it into the chorus and kind of flipped the whole, the chorus from that record was not used on his version. But, but when I heard he, how he did that, I was like, okay, this is what has to be done now. We need this complete freedom. We don't need, I don't want to be stuck to what's on tape. I want to be able to mess with stuff. I want to be able to, and retime things, too. If, if a, a, a word is or a phrase isn't grooving with what I'm doing, I could chop that up into little bits and replay it on the keyboard and make it, you know, groove to my thing. So uh, that was a big moment in musical, in technical history, I'd say, is when samplers, <laughs> we're talking 32 megabytes too. Ooh, eight That, was expensive. Card that was expensive. Each eight megabyte. Card was eight hundred dollars. I have. I still have my S one thousand in storage because that cost me more than a lot of cards. I bought. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like it, it's uh, it's wild how you know. And we, a lot of people don't even understand what a megabyte is anymore because <laughs> you know, it's been so. When you're talking you know,
0: terabytes now, a megabyte sounds like like air exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A, megabyte, a I mean, megabyte back then was big real estate. Big.
1: Yeah. We were dealing with kilobytes back on the uh floppy disks. And that was, you know, that was something you know, that we got a lot of stuff on one little floppy disk. You know? <laughs> so um yeah, that when the digital world started meeting the analog world, that's was the big game change right there. That was the big
0: so the Steve, Hur- yeah, I could tell you that Steve Hurley definitely, definitely a game changing guy in a lot of different ways, and I heard that from other people as we interviewed. Uh, East said the same. Um, other people always talk about Hurley and Marshall, Marshall Jefferson as well as being serious, serious game changers because they were taking things, making coolness out of non musical parts as well. You know, that's another thing where we were starting to first hear. Non musical parts become part of the integral part of the production now, you know. Where where it was pre to that, everything was perfectly laid out. Like you said, some keyboard players in those days, you know, were you, were, you couldn't get them to play simplified like that. They'd be like, "Get out of here, dude! Come on now." <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, like this ball, That's that's like one on class one on one. Like bum bum bum. but yet we were we were and we and all clubland were loving it. Yep. They were buying the records. So, what's the first big remix that you touch that becomes synonymous? I could have been with Def Mix or whoever it was, but what was the first big one for you that you played on? Everybody said, "Oh, wow, Eric, that's I want you now." You know,
1: it was probably the third or fourth record I did. It was with Justin, and it was a freestyle record. It was In Love with Love, Debbie Harry. Um, of the pop stand remix and it became a number one. It was my first number one Billboard record, and um, I think that opened up a lot of doors. I definitely do. You know, it's 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 it, it you, guys like Louis Vader, they were he was doing freestyle at the time. A lot of people were doing freestyle music. There was a mm-hmm. lot of people that did a little of both, but you know, I remember. Yeah, I mean, house was, house was around and it was just in this evolution at that time. We're talking about like 86 in New York. And while it was a force, it was a very underground force still. And it wasn't really starting to take to solidify, I'd say until about 87 for me, at least in the clubs. I could be wrong. You're, you're going to probably say, no, you're wrong. But for as a a solid genre where you would, could go hear an entire set of nothing but house music, it was 86-87 to me. I'm not sure if I'm right there.
0: No, you're about right. Okay. And it depends which demographic club you were in. Yes. You know, because like if you went to some place like the Paradise Garage, no, you didn't hear freestyle. It made one record, not the whole night.
1: Exactly. Oh yeah, of course. If you but went to Palladium. Like the is known for its eclectic. Right. Eclectic. If you went to Palladium. To go to hear just house music. Alone. zero, Nothing but. There wasn't enough house ability.
0: music to play through the whole night yet, either.
1: Yeah. Very,
0: you know, that's true. At that time, there wasn't enough that was that would be acceptable to play. I got fired from playing house music from, from uh, oh. Bear Jones. i <laughs> tell that story all the time from the underground he didn't want to hear that music and his, he didn't want me to play it to the people. Wow. It's a different time that de- those days It was different. They wanted to hear, you know, yes and situation. They didn't want to hear move your body, move your body. Even though that's a great song, but you know, it was a little bit of some coaxing that had to be done to get these people to understand this music was taking over.
1: It was a more raw sound too. It really was. It was, you know, we're talking to, you listen to the situation. These are properly produced records. These are not guys in basements or even, even in proper studios. They sounded raw, you know, they really did. So it was definitely, um, it was a learning curve for me too, because, you know, I had to own, well, not that I'm really that studied. I mean, I actually do have a degree in classical music theory and I can't read a note. I just, you know, fake my way through the whole damn thing. Um, just doing stuff by ear. But I did have to unlearn certain things. And I, I always talk about the key of DJ, you know, that, that key where an acapella is playing over a record that's in the wrong key, but it still sounds cool. That is the key of DJ. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so you have to, to, to be able to kind of take yourself out of that. Well, these t- two notes don't work together because they're not in the same G and blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah. yeah. If it sounds good, it's good, man. If it sounds cool, and that's where it took me kind of experimenting to kind of unlearn some certain thing you know certain things as well just to kind of say okay anything goes let me just try that and it's like you know what that wrong chord sounds better than the right one
0: <laughs> you know you, th- that's that's the thing because most guys that were coming up didn't know how to play keys so they were just taking a cappellas and putting these these chords that they would sample and then play them on the keyboard and it, if it didn't make sense or not as long as it sounded well that it gelled well together exactly people went crazy that's what what was truly was happening yeah and samples graffiti, too, we're with you know with real stuff with graffiti like an art it's like you got to take this beautiful picture and throw graffiti on top of it. That's what that's what it's like. And say, and everybody's like, "Yo, that's the greatest thing ever." Some people thought said it was garbage. We thought it was amazing. Yeah, you know,
1: computer, not, you know, yeah, that's let's not, we also got to talk about hip hop there because hip hop with its sampling and and sometimes the discord that created from, you know, mixing these samples, the the dissonance was fantastic. And I think that also, obviously, hip-hop influenced house music. A lot of house music people, you know, obviously, like, Todd Terry would be the most... Oh, Todd famous. Terry and Kenny Doe. Those two are yeah, hip-hop exactly. fast guys.
0: Our exactly. Mom, I
1: mean, mom been Oh Yeah, exactly. Taking samples with a hip-hop approach, but making house music with And we're not talking about hip-house either. That's a whole different thing. But we're talking about taking a hip-hop sampling approach to house music, which was amazing'm
0: amazing. right so it's time.
1: It's, <laughs> it's an art form in itself you know I mean got like Todd Edwards I mean that guy what he can do with samples is just blows my mind just blows my mind he's
0: remixed some of my records and I mean and I'm hearing this these tracks come back and years and years ago I'm going where the hell did he find that in my track <laughs> you know, I, I can I know what he did but I'm like well where is he hearing that? Because that's how his <laughs> brain works. It's the same with Kenny Dope. How does he make that SB 1200 8 bit drum machine sound so freaking fat? <laughs> yeah, right? And, and, and but yet, I'd rather have the drums laid out on a keyboard and program them into the sequencer where, say, like I spoke to Kenny about this, he would rather have the drum machine with the quantize of Roger Lynn that feel. And do it right on the drum machine and lock his stuff up. And for me, it's cumbersome working on that machine. He's like, bro, it's easy for me.
1: So it depends on how your brain operates and how it workflow is for you, you know. Now I used to be a drum machine guy, and sometimes I, I miss it. Like for, for a while, I have I had a, a uh, the MPC uh the, the Renaissance in my studio, and it was fun working in that mode again because it is kind of like simple and quick. You take a four-bar thing, you bang out some stuff erase this note hit this one you hit this one by mistake by mistake and you go oh, that's awesome too and you just if there's a lot of um c- kind of uh, fun trial and error in that kind of thing when you're doing it with a keyboard there's more you know there can be more thought involved you have to kind of plan out stuff more whereas when you're doing it on a drum machine there is more on the fly feel you know it's like boom boom now nah, yes I'll, I'll delete this note you know and, there's something to it, man. There's something to it, and I, I some I have a little electrode here, a little Korg electron which is a drum machine, and I, sometimes I program on that and will trigger other sounds with it. And, you know, if I'm in that kind of mode, but normally I pretty much know what I want before the that. Time you and you want, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, kind of, I kind of get that. You know, yeah, I, I kind of do things in my head before I actually uh, lay them out.
0: And why is that? Think about that for a second. Why do you do
1: that? Very good question. Um, I don't because although sometimes I do like to go in the studio just with a clean slate and experiment, that's not usually my modus operandi. Usually it's like I have an idea and I'll flesh it out of my head. Like when I'm not I always say when I'm not working, I'm still working. When I'm sitting out on my porch, you know, watching the sunset, I'm thinking about a record. You know, I'm, I'm kind of planning it out in my head. So when I do go in the studio, boom, you know, it's it's like I can get it done. And I'd say about 90% of the time it comes out the way I envisioned it. And sometimes it comes, it still comes out good, but it kind of took its own course in the studio. Kind of like, whoa, okay. I didn't realize that was going to happen. I didn't, you know, I didn't envision that, but, um, I don't know it, it, it. I don't know why I do it, how I do it, whatever, but it just seems to be my method of, of making music. Uh, Cause I've always been very analytical. That's why I say I don't, it, it, I, I don't dance. I don't, when I'm at a club, I don't dance. I listen. And um, I think I'm always analyzing music, even when I'm not making music. Somehow I just have this kind of musically analytical brain. Well, there's two
0: things I want to say. Then we're going to go to pay, we're going to go to our sponsors and play their commercials. If you if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, of course. And back in the old days when we had budgets that we had to work in rooms, you had to have a good plan to walk in with. You couldn't go in there unless you're the Stones, unless you're Rolling Stones, and you <laughs> your in here and you can actually have caviar dreams. And champagne every day, and not worry about the the time clock. You you, you were at home planning your sessions. So I understand why you still do that
1: because that. You know what? I didn't even think it. of that. Yeah, you had to have an. That's you were in clock. there. You, had, you didn't have an infinite budget, and you also had time. You could say, "Okay, I got a session for tracking and a session for mixing." Period. Done, Eric, And that's. they
0: yeah. would say this to you: Here's the money. Make it work. <laughs>